We have been in a series that we've called A King is Coming. And so each week we've been looking at a passage of scripture that I hope has helped you as it's helped me anticipate the birth of Christ. It's, it's significant. We all think about it. Even, even those who are not gathered in churches on Sunday mornings are thinking about the birth of Christ, whether they, whether they think of it or not, because December 25th is coming, and they're going to celebrate it somehow. Most people, okay, most, most, most of us, at least in, this, um, in America um, and in a lot of Western cultures, they're thinking about Christmas and figuring out how to celebrate it, and they're, and they're wondering about these, these themes of peace on earth and joy to the world and silent nights and things like that, and, and um, we're, we're wrestling with that too. And you're wrestling with it too because you've been wondering what's God doing in the midst of all of this stuff? Uh, Where is God in the midst of all of my trials and all of the sufferings or experiences that I've had? Or even even if things are going fairly well for you right now, and you're thinking, God, you know, God is good. We're just really blessed and, and we're just enjoying life. Um, there's always this kind of nagging, you know, thing. You're wondering, am I where I should be? Is this all there is? There's always more to it. There's always more to uncover. And I hope that that's what you've been discovering. So in the very first Sunday, we looked at a story in the Old Testament uh, that uh, on the theme of... We really need a king, or we want a king. We looked at a story in the Old Testament where the people of God were saying, we want a king to rule over us. We want a king like all the the other kings around, uh, or all the other nations. And God used that. Uh, He captured that desire to help teach them what a real king was going to be like. And he did give them a king. And they had a bad king. And then they had a good king. And then they had a series of other good and bad kings. But one of those good kings, um, God came to him and said, Hey, I am going to, give, I'm going to bring a king from your family. Um, you want to make me a house to dwell in, but I want to make a house out of you. I want to make, I want a ma- to make a, a dynasty out of you. And so there was a promise of, a, of another king that was going to come that was going to bring peace, uh, shalom, and promise. And then, and then later on, uh, in, a, in another time where, where Israel was, was very uncertain uh, about what their future held, uh, God came to them again and, and said, here's what this king is going to be like. Here's what he's going to do. And he gave them those promises once again, reaffirmed those promises, and said, this is going to happen. And now, we're looking at the story of the king's arrival. The, all of the promises being fulfilled. And fulfilled, uh, like Kevin said last week, he made the point, it, biblical prophecy doesn't always happen like we would like it to happen. Or we think it's going to happen. And we wonder, you know, what does this really mean? How is this really going to work? But now we're getting to the point where he's finally here. He's finally arrived. The day has come. The moment of anticipation is being fulfilled. So let's look at it together. Matthew chapter 1. And I'm gonna, I want to focus in on verses 18 to 25. But 
because it's, I think, so significant to this story, I'm going to read the first 17 verses of Matthew as well. I'm going to take a risk here. I'm going to try to pronounce some of these names. I'm just going to pronounce them as if I know how to pronounce them and fake my way through it, okay? So I want to invite you to listen as I read Matthew chapter 1, and I'm going to begin right at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathon, and Mathon the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. <sighs> Take a quick break there, because that's a lot of names. Some of you may be writing them down, future names for your sons. Um, and while I'm taking that break, would you stand with me as I finish out the rest of this reading? Our focal passage here from these verses onward. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word to us today, and I pray that you will guide us, guide our understanding, 
Uh, I pray, Father, that the words that we hear in our hearts and uh, the experience of our time together this morning uh, will remind us of your grace, your love for us, um, your goodness, uh, your glory, the greatness of your King. And Father, I just pray that you will uh, inspire us to be courageously obedient to you. Uh, to confront whatever fear we may have of letting you rule and do that today, God, by faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this story, the reason why I wanted to go back and, and catch all of, of verses 1 through 17 is not because I, I wanted to pronounce, uh, try to pronounce all those names, um, but because this is a, a very important, significant part of the story. Uh, Matthew, the book of Matthew, comes right at the beginning of the New Testament. Now, it was almost surely not the first book written in the New Testament. There is really no scholar, whether it's the most conservative scholars or the, the most liberal, uh, wide uh, arguing scholars, none of them would agree that Matthew was the very first book written. But... It's there, and it's been listed first of all of the Gospels for centuries and centuries. And the reason why, I think, and, and most scholars would, would agree with this, is this genealogy here is a bridge between the Old Testament and the New. And it tells us that this story of Jesus is not just some new, made-up thing. It's, just, it's not some um, thing that doesn't have any connection to the rest of it. I mean, you look at my, this Bible, I, this is Old Testament, and this is new, and Matthew bridges the two of them. There's a lot of stuff going on in the Old Testament, and this genealogy tells us that there's a lot of history. And all of this history is building up to... Jesus. All of that history, everything from creation all the way to the very last prophets to speak and record the words of God, everything is pointing us to Jesus. The, the king, if I put it into a point, the king arrives by the action of God through historical trajectory. That may, that may sound like a technical... It is kind of a technical term for, for Bible study, but it's real simple. Historical trajectory. History has a trajectory. History is pointing towards something. History is leading to something. It begins with creation. He, Matthew writes the book of the genealogy, and he uses the exact same phrase that is used all the way back in Genesis. The book of the genealogy of creation. And then that phrase is recorded over and over about the book of the genealogy of Adam and of Abraham and of, and of, the, uh, of the history of Israel. And, and those genealogies continue on and on and on. And they're so important in history. Where we came from, who we belong to. It starts in creation where God makes everything. And then it continues on with Abraham. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Then he says, the son of Abraham. And then right then, in verse 2, from verse 2 to 6, he says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, etc., etc. Here, Jesus is, Jesus is the son of Abraham. But who was Abraham's son? Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was 
was Abraham's son. Isaac was the son of promise, the son of Abraham's old age. He and his wife were, were way past childbearing age. And by miracle of miracles, they bear a son. His name is Isaac. And then when Isaac is around 12 years old or so, Abraham takes him up on a mountain because God had said, go sacrifice your son Isaac to me. So he goes to sacrifice his son Isaac and God intervenes and says, no, now I know you believe me and now you trust me. You'll do whatever I said. You will be courageously obedient. But no, I don't want you to sacrifice Isaac. Here's a ram to take his place. But yet, we're told by, by Matthew that Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the son that steps into Isaac's place. He steps into that genealogy. He is the son of, of all of, of Israel's history. He's also the son of David. Notice in verse 1, Jesus Christ, the son of David, that's mentioned first. But then as the genealogy unfolds, we see David's name appear in verse 6. And David is the king. David is that king. Here, here we go from, from Abraham, a lone man with a wife. Uh, they're married. They don't have any children. And the history is that from Abraham and his wife Sarah, a huge nation has been birthed. And it culminates in this son, David. David, the great king, the archetypal king of Israel's history. And it says that David was the, fa the father of Solomon. Solomon's name means peace. And, and after all of the war of David, the nation would experience peace under the reign of Solomon. Solomon was the son of promise. God had come to David and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a great nation out of your son. Somebody who's going to come from you. He's going to be a great king. I will be his father. And he will rule forever. And Solomon died. And his son died. And his son died. And they kept dying. But see, Jesus is introduced in the story here as the son of David. He is the true son of promise. He is the true son of peace. He is the one who comes to rule forever and reign. So, from Abraham births a nation and that nation culminates in King David. And then it starts its decline after Solomon. And things begin to unravel fast. And before you know it, we get to verse 11, and the, and the genealogy tells us about the deportation to Babylon. Uh, the deportation, the exile. Everyone was gathered up and sent out of the country. They were all rounded up. I don't know what it was. It was like Babylon came in and did this kind of ice thing and just rounded everybody up and took them out. But it was, it, it's not like what you might think of as deportation in our country. It was like you, you were born here. Your parents were born here. Your parents, their parents were born here. You may have lived here a long time. You may have a history here going back years and years and years. The folks in, in Moxie have that. I mean, the folks living here in Moxie, they, they've been here for a hundred plus years. Grandparents, their grandparents, and great-grandparents, etc., etc. And it'd be like somebody coming in from outside... A foreign country coming in and rounding everybody up who's been here for generations and generations and saying, this is not your home anymore, and taking them back to their home. How'd you like that? That'd be, that'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? It was not fun, but that's what happened. 
And there they are, deported in a foreign country. But yet the genealogy is not over, is it? It continues on. And it continues on. And, and they come back to the land. That's what's embedded in this little genealogy. The history is they came back. They were restored to their land again, but still wondering, when are we going to have the big breakthrough? When is this king going to arrive who is supposed to rule forever? Who's supposed to rule with justice and mercy? Who's supposed to bring us a lasting peace? Well, God was acting. The king arrives by the action of God through this trajectory of history. Abraham, to David, to the deportation, all the way to Christ. And throughout, he's ruling, he's overseeing, he's speaking, he's protecting, he's restoring, he's preserving his people to bring about the next, the next great action in this story. And that is the miraculous conception here, here we go. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Mary, betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, so parents, explain that to your children, what that means, okay? I think you have, probably have an understanding of what that means. Before they came together, she was with child. Whoa, what's going on here? Hello. From the Holy Spirit. Right away, Matthew doesn't take time to describe the social dynamics. He doesn't tell us a love story. He's not telling us anything, anything in detail. He's not explaining how it happened. He doesn't give us any hints about the science behind it all. He just says it happened. And it was the Holy Spirit. It was this divine breath that caused life to form inside of this young woman. It's a miracle. Kind of reminds me of creation. Kind of reminds me of, of the forming of man out of the dust of the ground and God breathes his life into humanity. I mean, we, we as people, human beings, we came about by the breath of God. So why would it be unthinkable that the breath of God would form life inside of this young lady? That's all that Matthew gives us. He's not trying to defend the virgin birth. He just says, this is what happened. This is what, this is what took place. And it's everybody else in the story that's scratching their heads going, I don't know what to do here. This is an act of God. But the final act of God, if I could just jump ahead a few verses, uh, verse 22 and 23, uh, Right in the middle of this story, the, uh, the writer, Matthew, interrupts us to tell us this took place to fulfill what was written in prophecy. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. 
Isaiah 7, verse 14. Um, this is it. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Aside from a couple of maybe translation differences between this Greek version here in Matthew and the, the Greek and the Hebrew versions in Isaiah, he's just quoting it verbatim. He's saying, this is what happened. This, this was spoken by the prophet long ago, and this is the fulfillment of it. Well, in Isaiah's time, a time of, of great national crisis where the nation was divided and the northern kingdom was, a, was, was coming against the southern kingdom and foreign nations were coming in as well to, to help out and pick on the kings of Judah and Jerusalem. All of this was going on and God came to them and said, Hey, I'm with you. This is not the end. I've got this. Trust in me. In fact, do this. Ask for a sign. And, and Judah's king at the time said, no, I won't ask for a sign. And God said, well, I'm going to give you one anyway. A virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And most people think that that actual, the, 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 the actual immediate fulfillment of that was actually in Isaiah's time and in his own experience of a child being born. Because the ultimate, the, the immediate fulfillment of that prophecy was that God did come and he did rescue his people through some pretty extreme means. God with us. But as, we, as we've already seen, prophecy doesn't always get fulfilled like we expect. And sometimes there is a fuller fulfillment. There's a more complete fulfillment. And that's what Matthew is pointing at here. He's saying, well, actually, although that happened in history, this full, complete fulfillment was taking place when Jesus was conceived and born of this virgin woman. And they called him God with us. I would, love to, I would love to give you the hundreds of places in the Old Testament where that God with us theme is made obvious. We don't have time for that. But I can tell you this. Moses said, if you don't go with us out of the desert and into the promised land... I don't want to go either. you got to go with us. God said, I'll go with you, and I'll go before you. When Joshua was on the edge of the promised land, or the, the promised land, yes. Uh, how am I going to do this? How am I going to lead your people? Moses is dead. What's going on? God said, I am with you, and I will be with you. And then when Solomon was going, this great nation is here, and I just inherited everything. How am I going to do this? And God came to him and said, just as I was with your father David, I will be with you. The prophet said, God will be with you in Isaiah. And now, here we are. The king has arrived. And the promise of the king is that he will be with us. And just like he did throughout Old Testament history, he rescues his people. The king comes. The king arrives here to rescue his people. That's exactly what the angel said about Jesus. Don't be afraid. Take Mary as your wife. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. It's, it's the Greek, or actually the English version of the Greek word, which was translated to, of the Hebrew word, Joshua. Whew, there we go. 
Here we are. We got Jesus. Don't let people freak you out about the name Jesus. It's okay. It's okay to pray to Jesus in English because that's your tongue. That's what God's given you to pray in. But it comes all the way to us from Joshua, Yeshua, the Lord saves, or the Lord rescues, the Lord is salvation, the Lord is rescue with a capital R. And that's what's going on here. That's what is promised. Angel says, he sh you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And if any people were in need of salvation, of course, we've seen God save his people, rescue his people um, throughout their history. Matthew's time, Joseph's time, this was a time where they needed rescue. Here again, they're in a time of national crisis. Here again, they have foreign enemies ruling over them by Rome. And their soldiers are on every street corner and have their little, their little um, garrisons in every little city and town throughout Judea. And they're enforcing their rule. And not only that... But they also have this guy who calls himself a king. His name is Herod. And I don't want to take you away from next, year, next week's message because it's going to be awesome. And we're going to take a look at who Herod is. But let me just say this about Herod. Herod was crazy. That's, that's, a, that's just my summary word for, for who he is. He was power hungry. He, was, he felt threatened all the time. He, uh, I got to be careful how far I step in this. He was the kind of person that if you were on his side, you felt pretty good, at least for a while. Because you'd never know when he would turn on you for his own gain. Here is... A promise of Jesus by the angel. Jesus will come to save his people. And Herod's the kind of person who will kill his people at the drop of a hat to protect his own interests. Oh, people were, people, I'm sure people were crying out. We need a king. We need a true king. We need to get rid of that old king. We need somebody new. We need somebody to save us. I don't know how many of them were asking for salvation from their sins, though. See, that's kind of the catch here. Jesus came to rescue his people from their sins. That was probably not something that was high on the list for them. Because they're thinking of economic prosperity. They're thinking of protecting their national borders. They're thinking, they're thinking about draining the swamp, maybe. I don't know. Can I use that term? Am I getting to? I don't know. They're thinking about all of those things. They're not thinking about their sins. See, he came not to rescue them from their oppressors, their political rivals or their religious opponents. He came to save his people, to rescue his people from their sins. And if we don't, if we don't understand what that means, we don't understand Jesus. Because then Jesus is just another political, um, a, a political ally. Jesus is just another economic um, benefit. Jesus is just another person to make me feel better about my life. Uh, here's the thing about sin. 
Sin leads to death. That was the promise in the Old Testament. Uh, that was the promise in the garden. If you, the moment you eat this, the moment you transgress, uh, the moment you, you take this fruit, Adam and Eve, you'll surely die. And death and decay began immediately. It started there. And God had mercy on the first man and woman. And he let them live a very long time. And he had a purpose for that. He gave them grace in that moment. But ever since, people have been dying. One of the things that genealogies tell us, and, and Jesus' genealogy is no different, it tells us that people live and people die. I mean, all these people died. But guess what? It's, it's, a, it's a list of people who are scoundrels and rebels and, and uh, they're, they're, they're liars, they're murderers, they're cheats. They're fornicators. They're every kind of sin you can imagine. They're, they're in this list. And this is Jesus' ancestors. Wow. Great family tree, Jesus. All of these people had dealt with sin, lived in the, with the sin of their lives, the sin that was in them, and the sin that they, that they did, and the sin that was done against them. It was those, those trespasses, those, those disobediences, those things that we do when we rebel against the law. It, it's like when you're driving and you say, I see the 55 mile an hour speed limit, but I don't want to go 55, I want to go 65. So we rebel against the law. That's a transgression or a trespass. We do what we're not supposed to do. It says... Stay off the grass, and so we step on the grass. Um, <laughs> that's an army thing too, boy. I, don't get on the bad side of, of your sergeant major by stepping on his grass. Okay. Um, don't do that. That's rebellion. Sometimes we, sometimes we trespass by ignorance. Sometimes that happens. I, I got a ticket one time years ago. Years ago, and if I wouldn't have gotten that ticket, probably my wife and I wouldn't have gotten married. But I did, because I was driving 25 and a 15, but I didn't know it. And, the, and I said, I didn't know it. I was ignorant of the rule. I didn't know that that was the law right there. And the, and the officer said, too bad. Here's your ticket. And I paid my ticket. Sometimes it's ignorance, some, but most of the time it's just downright rebellion. We don't want to do that. It doesn't make any sense to us. We don't like that law. We don't like it. So we cheat, we, we, we disobey, we disobey God because we don't like his laws. We don't like the way he tells us to live our lives. And then there are those, those sins also though, and here's where it gets a little more tricky. There are the sins of falling short. The sins of failing to do the good that God has asked us to do. In other words, and, and Paul helps us out there, um, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's glory is his standard of holiness, of righteousness, of perfection. And we fall short of that day after day after day. We, a good illustration of that is archery. I've, I've shot a... When I, when I was a kid, it was just bow and arrow. And it wasn't archery. I Just bow and arrow. And we just kind of went out and we, we played around. And, but some people are really good. I have a few friends who are really good at archery. 
And they're in tournaments and things like that. And man, they practice, 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 practice. But they don't hit the bullseye every time. And I think if we set something up in here and we said, here, here you go, shoot this foam arrow at that target, uh, uh, you'd probably, you, you, some of you might hit the bullseye, it would probably be by accident. Sometimes we hit the mark by accident, by, maybe we say by God's grace. But the, the reality is that either we're just not strong enough, we don't see the target well enough, our aim is a little off, our stance is a little off, whatever it is, we miss the target over and over and over. And, and we try so hard. Some of us are trying so hard, but we still fail to meet his standard. It, it gets to the point where some of us stop trying. We just stop trying. Sin does that to us. Sin in all of that, all of those manifestations does that to us. So why, why, why do I take the time to talk about sin? It's Christmas time, Michael. We should be talking about happy things. Because the king arrives to rescue his people. And the rescue that the people needed in Joseph's time, in the time of Matthew, when he's writing this down, and in our time, is the same. It's a human problem. It's sin. We need it too. And if we slide through Christmas without thinking about this, without thinking about our greatest need, and without thinking about the greatest need of the people we love so much, or even the people we hate, that we're made in God's image, and He loves them. We've missed Christmas. Let's not miss that. Let's not miss that, that God came. He arrived on this earth, born as a little baby, to deal with our biggest problem, our sin problem. And here's how it's manifested in this story. The king arrives, which means that he is ready to depose the old king. He arrives in, in the baby, and as a baby, in the manger. Another story, not here in Matthew. But he arrives because there's a king on the throne that doesn't need to be there, that shouldn't be there, that doesn't belong there, that can't rule with righteousness and justice. And I'm not talking about King Herod per se. I'm talking about the king on the throne of your heart. And it's you. And it's me. We need a king who will rule our lives with truth and with justice and with grace, with mercy when we need it, with forgiveness, with power because we don't have it, with the ability to live in a way that's going to honor the God who created us. That's what we need. And we will not get there by ourselves. We can't rule that way. Even if you think you're, you're really hoping in something else, like a president or a governor or, a, or Congress or an economic system or a religious list of rules, even if you think that's what your king is, in reality, the king is really you. It's you who you're worshiping, it's you because they're doing what you want. You're picking that out. You're saying, that's who I want for my king because 
That's what makes me happy. That's what fits my idea. And Jesus comes to say, no, I am the king who's going to rule over you by rescuing you and making you my people. The sin that we need to address is the sin of rebellion against the right and true king. He deserves it all. How, how do we get there? How do we get there? I want to argue that it's going to take some courageous obedience. It's going to take some real courage. It's going to take confronting some fears in our lives before Jesus can rule and have his reign over us. And let's just get a little deeper into the story here, shall we? The king arrives to be received by faith. And when I say by faith, I mean courageous obedience. Look at Joseph. Joseph, how is Joseph described? I like Joseph. He's a great guy. In fact, I mean, here he doesn't say anything, right? He doesn't say anything in the story. But, but yet, we get a good sense, I hope, of he's a, he really is, I think, as a man of character. I mean, maybe he's kind of like that Boaz guy that we talked about a, a month or so ago. You know, he, he's a worthy man. Here he is, described as being a just man. A just man, or some translations, righteous. He does what is right and true and good. And he's unwilling to put her to shame. He doesn't want Mary to be embarrassed or shamed by, all, by, by the situation that Mary is in. And he wants to just quietly walk away from it. But the angel... And God himself knows better. He knows when our righteousness is simply a mask for fear. Because the angel comes and says, Joseph, son of David, let me remind you of who you are and whose house you belong to, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Do not fear. Boy, I tell you what, we probably... Maybe if you haven't already, you need to put that on the doorpost of your house or at least on your mirror, and it needs to be there every day. Do not fear. Now, don't, don't get too caught up in, you know, your ability, your human ability to conquer your fears. That's not what God's talking about here. But the angel is confronting Joseph with something that's real and something that every one of us deal with, our fears, which keep us from doing what God wants for us to do. So, Joseph wasn't afraid of commitment. Joseph wasn't getting cold feet. He wasn't afraid to just kind of pull the trigger and marry the girl already. That's not what was going on. Joseph was afraid that his entire life would be turned upside down. Because Here's the, here's the reality of the time in which Joseph lived. And it's, it's a little bit different than it is today, at least in terms of cultural expectations. I don't think it's all that different in terms of what God desires for us and his plan is for us. But we don't do these, this betrothal thing like they do. 
back then. To be betrothed meant to enter a legal agreement to be married. And, and it was sort of like what we think of as an engagement period, sort of. But, the, but here's the deal in that time. It was you're legally, legally connected with this person, but you're not living together. You haven't, you haven't been legally wedded in the eyes of God, in the eyes of, of, of the community. So you're living in separate homes and the young lady was still living with her family at that time and that, that betrothal period could be an, a year up to three years. It could be any uh, period of time around there. And during that time they were expected to honor the vows that they were going to take of purity and the rest. And so when Joseph finds out that Mary is with child, he's like, whoa, that's not right. And I'm, I can't step into that. If I were to marry this young lady who's obviously sinned outside of marriage, I'd be risking everything. I'd become an outcast. I would lose my livelihood. I couldn't work here. The, the community would say, what are you doing? What's going on in your relationship? They would, maybe they'd think I'm guilty of this. I, I, I just I can't do this. To marry Mary, <laughs> to, to make her, to take Mary as his wife, as the Bible language tells us, meant risking everything he had. His reputation, his, his, uh, li his, his livelihood probably, his future suddenly becomes very clouded. You could think, you could understand why he was pondering these things in his, in his mind. And so the only, the only way to get out of this situation, well, not the only way, but the way he decided was, I'll divorce her. I'll go to the, the, to the village elders. I'll have a, a certificate of divorce written up. I'll have it witnessed. I won't say anything. I won't make a big deal out of it. I will try not to put her to further shame. Maybe she can leave town for a while and go visit some relatives while she's pregnant and everything will be okay. And, uh, you know, maybe that's the scenario he's thinking because uh, he did have the option of a trial. He could have said... This woman who I'm betrothed to now is pregnant. It's not me, so let's have a trial and figure this out. And he chose not to do that because he is a just man. But the angel comes to him and says, God wants you to marry this woman. Take her as your wife because this is a God thing. God is acting here in this miraculous conception. So, Joseph, I want you to be courageous and be obedient to what I'm asking you to do. I want you to be ready. Have faith, Joseph, to receive the king who is coming. Face your fears, Joseph, because what is coming is greater than your fears. Like Joseph, 
God has revealed himself to us. He's, he said, I'm your king, King Jesus. And our, and our challenge is not all that different than what Joseph faced. Will we receive him as our righteous king? The king of promise. The, the king who comes to rule over our lives with, with yes, with his rules, but with his love, with his... Uh, the exhilaration, the glory the awesomeness of serving the King and having Him in our lives for now and in His kingdom now and forever dwarfs any fears that we have of what it might cost us. Maybe this story from an experience I had will help you understand something about fear. This summer... Um, Although I've ridden in a lot of, of military aircraft, um, this summer I had the chance to sit on the tail of a Chinook helicopter for the first time. And, um, and I, I got this opportunity because I have a chaplain friend who, um, <clears throat> who used to be uh, a, uh, a crew chief. And so that, that was his job. That was his thing. And he knew the folks who were running these routes. And so I got to sit on the back of this um, Chinook. And while we were sitting there on the ground, um, I was thinking, this doesn't look too bad. I'll just sit right there and I'll be wearing this harness and I'll have this clip in the middle of my back. I can't see it. I can't really even feel it. I don't, but I have, some guy is going to, crew chief is going to hook me up. And he's going to tell me to move out to the back of the tail. And while I was on the ground, I'm thinking, this, this all sounds really great. And then we lifted off, and we got up in the air a few hundred feet. And he said, okay, come on back, chaplain. Motion to me. And he's like, all right, here you go. Okay, now walk out there. And there I was, thinking all of the things that people may, might think when they're in a situation like that. Is my harness on? Has he strapped me in act correctly? I, do, I don't even know this guy. I mean, he's just some NCO. What does he know? Uh, I, didn't, I didn't really think that, but I love, our, I love our NCOs. But here I am going, what is going on? Can I trust this? And, and will this experience be worth it? You know? Because I had a chaplain assistant who said, I don't think it'll be worth it, so I'm not doing it. And he sat way, 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 way deep inside the Chinook with his eyes closed and not looking out the back. Um, and there I was, sitting on the back of that tail with my feet dangling off in midair. And every once in a while, we'd hit a little pocket and my butt would come off the ground an inch or two. And I'd wonder, do I really have faith in this system? But then, as the ride went on, and, and there I am, hundreds and hundreds of feet in the air, flying and seeing Yakima and the training center disappear, and flying over uh, Gleed and Osila and Gleed and Natchez and Tyatin, and coming up the river and, and, and looking down below me and seeing the little Tyatin River that floats down and runs into the Natchez and going right over White Pass. And, and man, I could have just reached right out there and slapped a skier. We were so low to the ground. And, 
it was July. There were no skiers. But it was amazing. And, and then we came over and we're driving through the western side of the pass and all of the trees and all of the beauty and seeing the hills. And, the, and I'm like, this is amazing. This is glorious. This is awesome. And I wouldn't have experienced any of it had I not had faith. And here's the truth for us today. The good news that Matthew is telling us about. And he's revealing to us. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to us saying, The King is here. The King has arrived. The King is Jesus. He arrives to rescue us. Yes, rescue us from our sins. But here he comes to say, I am here. God is here. God with us. He's present with his people. Will we have faith to receive him? Because he's saying to us, I am your king. And like Joseph, we're thinking, but if I, if I go to him, and if I do this thing, if I, if I, if I accept him, and if I receive him, and if, I, and if I obey him, I have to give up everything I have. You may be wondering, where is that in this? It's all over the Bible. And that's the message of Christ in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. You, you people, the king is here. Will you let go of everything, leave it all behind, and follow him? Will you follow Jesus? Jesus is the king who arrives by the action of God. Jesus is the son who, like Isaac, is led to be sacrificed. But God does not stay his hand when Jesus is being led to the cross. Jesus takes everything, all of the wrath, all of the punishment, all of the effects of sin, and he dies there for you and for me. Jesus is the son of David. He is Israel's true king. He's the one who will not fail at the end of the race. He will not rebel at the end of his life and say, no, I'd rather have power and I'd rather amass riches and I'd rather marry 700 wives and start worshiping their gods. Jesus goes all the way to the cross where he is crowned as king. And then he ascends after his resurrection and he sits at the right hand of the throne of God in majesty. And he rules forever and he reigns forever with true peace. He is the true son of David, the fulfillment of all God's promises. Jesus is the son who leads the people out of exile and returns them back to God. He says, I'm going to put an end to the generations of sin and rebellion. I'm going to put an end to that. I come to complete that, to conclude all of that, and say, that's not how you have to, to live anymore. You, you can be sons of God and members of this kingdom. 
That is the king that we have. That is Jesus. Jesus is the son who at the end of his earthly life, when he's about to leave his disciples, his kingdom people, he says to them, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's pretty powerful. The book of Matthew starts with the king arriving, God with us. And it ends with a king promising his kingdom people, I will be with you, God with us. So here we are. Will you put faith in the king? The king who arrives to rescue us with his own presence. That's our challenge today. And you might respond in, in, in a number of different ways. I don't know. Maybe it's, be, it's, it's you've never put faith in him. It, it, Jesus is simply not your king and you know it. He's not your king. Maybe you've said a prayer once before. Maybe you were baptized as a kid. I, I don't know. But you know right now he's not your king. Come to him. Bow before him. Maybe he's been working on your heart to bring you to a point of obedience because there is fear. And you're, that's the only thing you can think of. But you know God wants you to be obey in a certain way. Will you be courageous enough to trust your king and to do what he's calling you to do no matter what the cost? Will you come to your king today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this word. Thank you for leading us. Thank you for being good and glorious and righteous. Lord, we have none before you. Let us receive you, our king, with hearts of joy today. We love you. We give you praise. We give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.